as I said, welcome to Living Waters. I'm Ryan. We, we do our best to just display the, the truth and the person and the power of Jesus as authentically as we possibly can in this place. I love getting to see, getting to be a part of people being baptized and, uh, and just aligning their life with Jesus and taking that step of discipleship. Um, Another thing that we love to do is to take communion, and we're going to do that in a little bit. We will have, uh, as we've been trying to create Sunday morning spaces where there's um, more opportunity for worship, more opportunity for response and for, for prayer and for communion. And so in a little bit, we'll have the worship team come back up and we can, um, we can take communion. Um, this morning, I want to talk to you a little bit about the, uh, this is one of the Sundays where the, my message uh, text is sort of pre-chosen, I, I would say, uh, the triumphal entry, the Palm, Palm Sunday. Uh, so underneath your chair, I made palm fronds for everyone, so you can grab those and wave them around. Don't do it. That's sarcasm. You'll get four or five of those, uh, and by the end, no one will respond if I have an altar call. Um, I didn't make any palm fronds, I'm sorry. But if you grew up in the church at all, you know what I'm talking about. Sunday school, you're going to make your palm fronds, you're going to wave them around, it's going to be great. If you didn't, just say a little prayer of thanks to the Lord. Uh, we, don't, we don't want to make light of these, these, um, these kind of marker Sundays. Um, they are important. I think they give us a little bit of a, of a, I don't know, a yearly rhythm that I believe is so important to spiritual discipleship versus to spiritual um, growth in us is to have markers and to have rhythms. And so while we may not um, take Easter and uh, Palm Sunday quite as seriously as it maybe has been taken in other uh, contexts that you've been a part of, I may put on a button-up shirt. There's always that possibility. Kim might go get some, um, some tulips. I said poinsettias in the first <laughs> gathering, and she was like... You, sir, are an idiot, and uh, that's Jesus' birthday. Easter, Easter is his rebirth day, so I don't know. Anyway, we might throw out some flowers, but it's not that we diminish it at all. Um, we just believe that every day we should be challenged to align our hearts and lives with Jesus, and that in that alignment and allowance and invitation of his spirit being alive in us, that that should be, really, we should be walking and living in an awareness of his resurrection life, what his resurrection accomplished, and in his resurrection power every single day. But Easter does create a really neat marker, I think, for us as a, as a year goes by that we can look back and go, okay, God, what have you done in my life? What have you done through my life? What have you spoken to me? In fact, if you remember last year when we did the Triumphal Entry Sunday, which is today, and it's that week that leads up to Jesus's crucifixion and then his burial and then his resurrection as it leads up to that. Last year we talked about this, and one of the things that we had you do was think about places where you were um, in a wrestling match, a bit of a wrestling match to believe that God was going to show up or come through for you. And, uh, and one of the activations that we did was a phrase that we love. Um, one of Kate and I's favorite phrases was, is this, it's entirely possible. And I don't know if you have your journal or if you have last year's, if you, last year's message that I gave, I looked back at the video and it was, it was pretty sad. There was like 15 people here. We all had masks on and it was like, hey, watch online. Okay, we're not going to get into that. It just wasn't the most, it, but what I said was believing that it's entirely possible for your life and for what God is doing or for our church or for our community. And I have seen some, some radical things happen and just the fact of what we're doing here today, what God's doing is incredible, and what we got to witness is incredible. But I would challenge you, if you, if you don't remember, and I'm, it's turned on a light bulb, go back into your journal, go back into that, and, and, and just look. What were the things that you were asking God for a year ago, saying it's entirely possible? And I bet you would be surprised. Sometimes a meager faith is a direct result of meager praise, of meager, of meager perspective on paying attention to the things that God has done over our past or over the last year or over the last six months. We get so focused on now and next that we forget God's faithfulness in all the things that he has done. And so it's easy when you're missing, when you're skipping out on the little things and the journeys and the things that God has done, it's so easy for our faith to get small because we're not connecting to the place of saying, God, oh my goodness, look at what you've done. Look at what you've done. And so let's be people who use these Sundays while they might come along and we go, oh yeah, yeah, it's Easter, we gotta do all this stuff. No, more than that, use it as a marker. For your, for your spiritual journey and, the, and that discipline of saying, I have rhythm to my, to my spiritual practices. And so if, 
if you don't know or, or if this is new to you, I, I want to give a little bit of context, a little background on what we call triumphal entry or, or Palm Sunday. And what it is, is it's, the, it's this marker point where Jesus comes into Jerusalem after his three years of public ministry, and he's coming into Jerusalem. And as he comes into Jerusalem, everybody is celebrating Jesus. Everyone is, is very excited to see Jesus. They're, they're anticipating what he's going to do. They have all these expectations of, of what Jesus is going to, what's going to take place as Jesus comes in. And so the crowds in the city, they all come out. He's got crowds with him. The city is receiving him and everybody is going, Jesus, we welcome you and you're the Messiah. You're doing this. And so what we are looking at this week and what my challenge to you this week is to just take some time and focus on a few of the days of what Jesus was doing. If you uh, read your word, get into the, into the gospels. This story is told in every single gospel and it's important for us to look at what was Jesus emphasizing? What was he doing? What were the actions that he took? What were the miracles or conversations that took place this last week of his public ministry? If it was important, Obviously, Jesus was going was gonna to speak it or share it or do it or model it. And so this is a great week for us to look at the Gospels and to read these stories of Jesus' last week on earth. And so we call it the Passion Week. And here's kind of how it breaks down. Earlier in the week, Jesus had withdrawn with his disciples. And so, I mean, not earlier in the week, earlier before this week took place, Jesus had taken a time, a season where he was withdrawing often to get away from people. And the reason he was trying to get away from people is because not to... Earlier than that, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. So if you know the story, Lazarus was a friend of Jesus, and, and he got very sick, and Jesus wasn't nearby. And so they text Jesus, and they said, Jesus, you got to come. And, um, and it had to shoot all the way up to 1998. And then, no, it didn't make it to him. And so it, he was late arriving for his friend. And when he got there, his friend Lazarus had passed away and, and he was, had been dead for, for four days. And, and so Jesus showed up to a funeral. He showed up to this processional where they're all weeping and they're sad. And he, and he calls Lazarus out of the grave and, and says, come. And Lazarus comes out of the grave. He's resurrected. It's this incredible miracle. It was also one of the messianic miracles that the, that the religious teachers would have been paying attention to. And they would have seen this and said, oh, this fulfills some of the check boxes that we've been watching for to see if Jesus really is the Messiah because there were people claiming, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah all the time. So they had these miracles and they would say, Does, have they done this? Have they done this thing? Have they done this thing? And so raising someone from the dead after they've been in the tomb for four days was one of these Messianic miracles. And so when this took place, the religious teachers, instead of saying, oh, you know what? We were wrong. Jesus is the Messiah. They decided, let's kill him. Like, that's their solution. So Jesus has spent, prior to this, this Passion Week, Jesus has been hiding and stepping back so that the religious leaders couldn't find him. And so Lazarus was there. He's telling his story. Crowds are coming to Lazarus' home and, and being gathering around there. But Jesus isn't around at that time. And so what, when Jesus began this week, he decided he's going to show back up and he's going to visit Lazarus and he's going to be there. And so all these crowds are there. Everybody, he's been telling his story, I'm sure, of how, what it was like to be in the tomb and then to have Jesus call his name and to come alive. Like, this is something that is gathering crowds and people are traveling to say, hey, we can't find Jesus, but we can find Lazarus, so let's hang out with him. And so that's, Jesus said, withdrawn. And then Saturday and Sunday, he visits that weekend, he visits Lazarus. Also, while he was visiting Lazarus, he was anointed. If you remember, the expensive perfume was broken over Jesus' feet in preparation for what they didn't know, but was in preparation for his, uh, for his burial. And then crowds, those crowds had formed. And so Jesus has kind of a large group of people with him at this point. And so he heads in on Monday. This is what we call the triumphal entry. The palm branches are laid out and palm branches and, and coats are laid out before Jesus representing this open reception of Jesus. It's, it's, it's honoring a dignitary. It's honoring a king and saying, come this way. We open up to you. And so this symbolic palm frong is, is laid down before Jesus. And so we call it Palm Sunday. We call it the triumphal entry. It's him in victory, in triumph, coming into Jerusalem. Now, we understand now that the people believed that Jesus was coming in to be a conquering king, and they had to have their minds changed a little bit as this week goes on. So Tuesday, he, clean, he cleanses the temple. This is when he runs everybody out of the temple that had been turning it into an exchange, a place, a marketplace, and they had made their whole money-changing system a way to keep 
people out of the temple that they didn't want to be there. So foreigners, women, others that they didn't want to be able to come into the temple. They had other places for them, and they would travel from afar. They would try to buy the right sacrifice. They'd try to get the right money, and these temple systems were like, you can't, you don't have the right money. you got to exchange with us. They were extorting, taking a bunch of money. So Jesus finds out that they're doing this, or no, he's known they're doing this, and he, said, and he runs them all out of the temple. And he says, this is to be a place of prayer. This is to be a place for the nations to come. And you've turned it into a den of thieves. And so he runs everybody out. But Jesus' heart is that everybody would be able to come. And that's what he was was representing to us, is that there is nothing remaining that Jesus hasn't removed for us to be able to make a way to, to God's presence. And so he clears the temple. Wednesday, Jesus is questioned. He rebukes the religious leaders. He prophesies about the temple destruction, which takes place 70 years later. And he, ta- and he says, the woe to you Pharisees. And, you, and uh, you guys will read that if you're reading those passages. And so he has these exchanges with the religious leaders of the day. And they're really putting him on pre-trial to decide what they're going to do with him. Because now that he's shown up in a public place, they know that when the time is right, we're going to be able to arrest him and we, could put him, we can put him to death. And so they're questioning him and they're asking these questions and he's in these different conversations that I think are really important for us to understand. And then Thursday, he has that last supper with his disciples. Judas betrays him. Jesus goes away. He's arrested at Gethsemane. He's away from the crowds. And then Friday, as you know, he's put on trial and then he's crucified. And then he's in the tomb. And then Easter morning, as we celebrate it, uh, uh, he's, he's alive. Jesus is alive, right? Or what are we supposed to say? Um, sorry. Uh, I'm not very good at this. Uh, he's risen. Dang it. There it was. Okay. Uh, shoot. Um, so Every single moment of this week, as you study this in Scripture, as you read this in the Gospels for yourself, I want you to understand that every single one of these moments are filled with scriptural and prophetic promises. That Jesus was doing specific things for specific reasons in obedience to what he says. I only do what I hear the, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only speak what I hear the Father speaking. And so Jesus is in obedience to this final week of taking care of some of the things that needed to be accomplished. And so we know that these moments are packed with scriptural significance, prophetic fulfillment, but even his closest followers, even his disciples missed it. John 12, 16, this passage in John that tells the story of his triumphant entry into Jerusalem or the Palm Sunday um, as we celebrate it. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this that was taking place. They, They were watching it take place. They were in it, but they didn't understand it. And only after Jesus was glorified, only after he ascended into heaven, was seated at the right hand, did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him exactly as scripture had foretold. So why could, how could people be that close to Jesus, be following Jesus, be walking with him through ministry and through time and still miss what Jesus was doing? The reason that they missed it is because they couldn't see past their expectations. They were so desperately pining for an earthly government to overthrow their oppression or to fix their problems that they missed that Jesus had come not to establish a earthly kingdom, but to establish a heavenly kingdom. They expected a king and he stood throughout this week that, we are, that we're looking at this week. Throughout this week, he stood before the religious leaders. He stood before the Sanhedrin. He stood before the council. He stood before the corrupt Jewish leaders. He stood before the Roman leaders. And at every single one of those moments, his, his followers, all of the people who had followed him into Jerusalem saying, we receive you, we receive you, we're so excited. They all were like, this is the moment where Jesus is gonna declare his revolution has begun. This is the moment where he's gonna say, I'm here to overthrow you. And in that moment, there would have been hundreds and thousands of people who would have been ready to rally to Jesus's aid or to his side. And yet, each one of those moments came and went and Jesus seemed to be missing opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to do what they expected him to do because he was up to something else entirely. Jesus was after a different throne and he was desiring that place in heaven and to be seated at God's right hand where he could pour his spirit out upon all flesh, sons and daughters, men and women, servants, old and young. And that's what he was after, was that unity with us. And I believe the reason that they missed what Jesus was doing are very similar to why we sometimes miss what Jesus is doing in our time. It's this, that he is and he was always up to something greater than what we can see or perceive. 
Ephesians 3.20, we love this passage. And the whole chapter of Ephesians 3, the whole, the whole letter of Ephesians is so powerful, but this is one that we stand on often. It says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work with, within us. To him be the glory in the community of believers and Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. We miss Jesus because he's up to more than we can ask, more than we can imagine, and more than we can perceive. He is able to do immeasurably more. And what looked like defeat to all of his followers was in fact total victory. John 12 says it this way, and this is Jesus. Now the prince of the world will be driven out, and when I am lifted up from the earth, that is him speaking of being lifted up on the cross, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Jesus was driving out the prince of this world and he was drawing all people to himself. What looked like defeat, the cross, what looked like, oh no, he's dead, his plans are revolution, everything has fallen apart, was in fact total victory. Why? Because he is able to do infinitely and immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine or perceive. Their viewpoint was very limited to a time and a place and a moment. His was not. He was looking at you and looking at me. He was looking across eternity and he saw victory at hand. So one day you have the story, the contrast of this story is that on the beginning of the week, you see a city celebrating Jesus. John 12, the next day, a great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus, they were in Jerusalem. They'd heard that Jesus was, was on the way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and they went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, saved, we are saved. Our salvation is here. Our savior is here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Sometimes people who say the right things can have the wrong perspective and motive on why they're praising Jesus, right? <clears throat> Hosanna, salvation is here. It sounds right, but they were saying, come, earthly king, earthly king, overthrow, overthrow. That's what they were wanting. But a week later, this, this same city with these people who were cheering him and welcoming him in a week later, they're saying, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate, the, the governor, the king of the, uh, was, was set up by the Roman government and he was, Jesus was on trial. If you'll remember, Jesus was on trial and he was trying to figure out what, is, what has Jesus done? Why do you guys want him killed? I will release a different prisoner to you and, and Barabbas and I'll, and I'll send him to you. And you guys, do you want me to release Jesus or do you want me to release Barabbas? Surely they're gonna say, we do not, we don't want the murderer and the crazy person back on the streets maybe they'll release Jesus and the crowd says no release him to us we want Jesus crucified crucify him crucify him from Hosanna Hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to a city that has now turned on Jesus and saying crucify him crucify him what was that weak difference what took place to bring it to that place we can say oh well the people were extremely fickle and that's true. Everybody's allegiance to Jesus was with that stipulation of ifs. The disciples, the crowds, I will celebrate you if, I will follow you if, I will remain in allegiance to you or I will trust you if you do what I expect the way that I expect it, in the timing that I expect it, in it to look like what I want it to look like and I want, to, I want it to all work out the way that I'm imagining it to work out. I will follow you if, and that's what the crowds were saying, like, Jesus, we are for you and with you. Our city is open to you as long as you come and do the things that we expect you to do. And we can say, oh, it's the crowds, they're fickle, the disciples are fickle, but we have to see ourselves, please, we have to see ourselves in that image and in that moment and in those crowds. Too often when we're reading the New Testament especially, we, uh, we get wrong the context of who we really are in the story. And I think that this is one of those moments where we could say, oh, those dumb crowd, the crowds, they just didn't, they didn't see what Jesus was doing. Well, as I said earlier, even his disciples didn't understand what he was doing until later when they had the opportunity to look into scripture and go, oh, we now understand this is what Jesus was doing. We're in that crowd as well. Why are we in that crowd? And I believe the one thing that I wanna focus on and talk about this morning is, is disappointment. And I think it's important on this Sunday where we're looking at the, the triumphal entry and the crowds opening up the city and celebrating that we understand that disappointment after disappointment after disappointment throughout the week eventually led them to turn on Jesus entirely and they went from welcome in to crucify him. 
So this morning, I want to ask you this. Are there areas of disappointment that you might be carrying that would cause you to miss what Jesus is doing in and around and through your life today? That's why they missed it. Could it be possible that you and I have areas of disappointment if unresolved will turn into bitterness and bitterness will leave a, a taste in our mouth that no matter what is happening, we will just taste bitterness, taste frustration. And that in disappointment, we would go from, Jesus, welcome into my life. I, I surrender my life to you. I give you the throne of my heart and my mind and my physical life. You can have the throne. And then he gets on the throne and he says, this is what surrender looks like. This is what allegiance costs. This is what I'm asking you to do. This is what righteousness looks like. And we begin to be like, it's not the way I expected it to look. I thought it would be a lot more glory to me and a lot less dying and, and, and laying down and letting go and releasing things. And I thought it would be a lot of this, these things. I thought it would be a lot less of that. And we can begin to be like, I didn't expect it to go this way. I didn't expect that to happen. I didn't expect that to happen. When things in your life don't go the way that you expect them, you have the opportunity to either receive them, pray through them, humble yourself and ask the Lord, what is this and why is this happening? Or we have an opportunity to, to blame God and get frustrated and disappointed. And so look at the places of disappointment, the possible places of disappointment in your life. And I, if you could just take a couple minutes and think right now with me, is there anything, is there any place in my life where I'm carrying disappointment? And I don't even mean that disappointment is bad or wrong. It's just what we do with it. But we do need to take a moment right now. And just, is there anything, is there any place of disappointment that you might be carrying? And it doesn't have to be disappointment with God. Let's, let's step back from that for, for a moment. I'm just talking disappointment in general. Some things might jump to your mind immediately. And some might be lower level. It might be stuff that you're so familiar with that you don't even recognize because you've been walking with that disappointment for 30 years. I believe that today God just wants to show us some places of disappointment so that he can talk to us about those to make sure that we're not allowing our disappointment to miss what, what else God might be doing in and around and through our lives. One of the hard things about teaching is, is that I, I have this tendency to want to fill in everybody's gaps um, and like, come think of areas of disappointment. And then I'll like, let me give you 15 of them and I'll just rattle them off to you and that doesn't help, right? I want you to be able to grab onto the things that are specific to you. But as I was praying and, and putting this message together, I did have a few that just popped into my heart that I wanted to share with you. Um, do you like how I make, I say, this is not something I should do. I own it and then I do it. Super rad teaching technique. Okay, so... Sometimes we get disappointed through personal prophecies. People speak things over us, they're well-meaning, and I'm not saying they're absolutely wrong. It's just, it's very hard for us. If we don't have a deep, powerful grounding in the word, it's difficult for us to live from personal word to personal word to personal word. And sometimes those personal words can unintentionally take up prominence on the mantles of our spiritual journey that they should not have. And I don't know if the prophetic word that is causing you disappointment was wrong. I'm just simply saying that maybe the timing, maybe the understanding, maybe the application, maybe the delivery, maybe the person. I don't know. I'm not here to decipher all of that. I'm simply saying that sometimes we can hold on to something that someone has spoken to us or a verse that we grabbed onto or something, and it can, it can become this point of pain and disappointment rather than what I would guarantee as it was intended to be was a word of encouragement and something that's to bring you life. And so looking across that, that the journal or the things where you're like, man, God, you gave me this word, you gave me this word, and it hasn't happened, it hasn't happened. I, I think it's important that we question the word and not God. And so sometimes we have to lay down words that it, maybe it, for whatever reason, just let it go. He's really speaking it to you. He'll bring that back to you. Okay, we're good? Okay, so failed promises. This seems similar to personal prophecies, but failed promises, uh, sometimes our understanding of the promises of God 
Um, we hold on to promises that he never made specific to us. We hold on to scriptures with promises in them that were not made to us. And we hold on to them and we make them our own when they were never our own. And so I get it that it's talking about the character and nature of God, which we can use as a foundation for our life. But I don't get to go willy-nilly through scripture and grabbing, prophecy, or I mean, grabbing promises for someone else and then holding God accountable to do them in my life. Does that make sense? So, so, okay, good. You guys are good. Okay. Awesome. Um, we know that this is God, what God is like. We know that scripture shows us what God is like, but it may not be what God is going to do in, around, through your life. He is up to so much more, as I said earlier, more than you could ask, imagine, or comprehend. But what if the more that he's up to is about his kingdom and not yours? What if the promises that he's speaking over your life aren't to get you to a certain plateau unscathed or with a certain, a certain point in life with amount of money in your bank account or a, a house with a size that fits all of your kids or, wh or whatever it is or a destination that you want to live in or a thing of like, oh, I'm standing on the promises of God. No, you're not. You're standing on your desires and you're calling them promises and you're trying to make God jump through hoops for you instead of understanding that everything, when you come into allegiance with Jesus, the entirety of your life becomes about Jesus and the kingdom. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and everything else, everything else will be added to you. It will be given to you. And we hear that and we're like, oh yeah, totally. I am Jesus, I am for the kingdom and I'm for righteousness. You're like, I know, I, I went to church like six times in the last month. There you go. You thought I was going to be mean, and I wasn't. Ha <laughs> ha. I went to church. I did my things. I did the this, and I did all that. Like, I'm totally seeking your righteousness, and I'm seeking your kingdom. Like, can I get my stuff yet? Come on, come on, come on. And we give lip service to this reality that says to seek first his kingdom means that you lay down every single part of your life and say, how is this align with his kingdom purposes. That means that you align every area of your life and say, how is this righteous? And I don't mean righteous in a religious manner that says you have to behave a certain way. Righteousness means right with God, that your life would be so aligned with his kingdom and his purposes in his heart that he would flow through you and that the kingdom would come and his will would be done through your life, through your family, through your home, through your workplace, through your responses to the things that are going on around you. If you live that way, if we live that way, then absolutely, we get to just say, let's move forward not worrying about all of the other stuff because Jesus will take care of us. But when we take promises that are not ours and we hold God to make them fulfilled, we can get disappointed. Stupid advice that sounds religious. That's another one that can cause disappointment in our life. And if you stick around here long enough, you're going to hear me give you some stupid advice that sounds brilliant, sounds religious, sounds spiritual. If you talk enough, you listen enough, things can sound really, really good, really, really true. But I want you to understand the importance of being able to discern by the Spirit of God that's in you to be able to discern the difference between somebody telling you something that sounds really spiritual or sounds really right and then laboring under that for 10 years, 20 years, 25 years because some spiritual leader or some church told me this or this is how it's supposed to be or blah, 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 blah. No, it is our responsibility to get into the word. It is our responsibility to be submitted to the spirit that we would be able to say, you know what? Not everything that someone who seems spiritual or some verse or quote that was said over me is something that I need to follow. Follow your dreams. Live out your passions. Those things can be good, and I'm not mocking those, th those things. But listen, how about this? Psalm 37, we love it. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Oh, please, I would like the desires of my heart, right? Just delight yourself in the Lord. What does that mean? I don't know, maybe throw on an extra couple songs of worship on your way to work, because clearly you're delighting yourself in the Lord. So what is the context of this verse? These sorts of platitudes, these sorts of things of saying, delight yourself in the Lord and you'll, and you'll get the desires of your heart. Trust in the Lord and do good, he says. Trust in the Lord. One, do good. Dwell in the land. Wherever God has you, settle in to that place and cultivate faithfulness. So trust the Lord. 
do good. Settle into the place that he has you. Cultivate faithfulness. And then what happens? Delight yourself in God. And if you do those five things, do you know what's going to happen? The transformation of the desires of your heart are going to go from what I want to what he wants. From my kingdom and my purposes to his kingdom and his purposes. The truth of that promise is about the transformation that takes place when you do those things, not about God pulling the thing and getting what you want out of it, the desires of your heart, right? So we have to be careful about stupid advice that sounds religious. Um, Unfulfilled expectations, unfulfilled outcomes, unfulfilled dreams. I am the, the greatest proponent of people having personal dreams, personal desires, having ideas, advancing the kingdom, opening businesses, starting schools, running for office, being a difference maker in everything. Like I believe in individual calling. I believe in distinct graces that exist on people's lives for certain seasons and certain times. I'm all, I am all for that. But sometimes we can get so caught up in that that we're walking around carrying these unfulfilled blank this, that, or the other. And so those unfulfilled expectations or outcomes that haven't quite turned out the way that we thought. I thought, God, that you called me to start this business so that I could become wealthy, so that I could then, uh, I could then make a difference in my neighborhood. Or maybe God called you to start this business so that in failing, he could refine your character. And in refining your character, you could walk through difficult times. And in walking through difficult times, you could be broken down. And in being broken down, you could be a better husband. And in being a better husband, you could be a better father. And in being a better father, you raise up kids that change a generation or change a school or change a friend's life. Why did he call you to start the business? To be successful? Maybe, or maybe it was in the failure that he was at work. And so sometimes our disappointment is that we get the wrong expectations, we think the wrong outcomes, and we dream things, and we think God's going to do that. Surely he's going to do it the way that I imagined it. And he doesn't, and we have disappointment. I'm going to have the worship team come back up. And in just a few minutes... I want us to have a time to worship. I want us to be able to have a time to take communion, to make exchange. And the thing that I want us to be able to exchange is just, is there any areas of disappointment that are hindering us and keeping us from seeing the bigger picture maybe of what God's doing in and through our lives today. Another area where we have disappointment is trauma and loss and grief. And there are things that have happened to you that's not your fault, but the burden has been left with you to carry it. And with trauma and loss and grief, it's extremely hard to know what to do with that. But what I do know is that when we go through hard times, when we go through loss, when we go through difficulty, as I said earlier, is that that, dis that disappointment can turn into accusation against God and it can turn into bitterness. And that bitterness will taint every single area of our life. And many of you know the difficulties that my family has been walking through and, 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 and the loss of my brother. And I, I've been learning something is that in the level of disappointment that I carry with God, there's no sin in the disappointment. But what happens is, is that that becomes an accusation and it becomes a bitterness. And before long, I can't even imagine or embrace that God in his redemptive work would be able to bring anything good out of that. And so there's good things happening in my life. And I'm like, why? Because disappointment has caused bitterness and bitterness turns into judgment and judgment is keeping me or you from being able to see the very good things that God is doing. Not that God had to do that. Not that we're making an excuse and saying, oh, that was part of his plan. No, I just mean don't take out of his hands. Don't take your life and your purposes and your fruitfulness. Don't take it out of his hands because he's a redemptive father. He didn't cause the thing. He doesn't have to cause the thing to be able to bring redemption out of it. But my bitterness will keep me from seeing that. 
Jesus wants to meet us in those places of disappointment. And I believe that he has empathy for us in those places of disappointment. And the reason is this. Luke 19 says this, as Jesus approached the Mount of Olives as he was descending into Jerusalem, as the crowds were coming out to meet him, they began to praise him and, and with loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. And the, and the, and the religious leaders, they came up to him and, and they were saying, blessed, the, or the people were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And I tell you, he answered, if they remain silent, the very stones will cry out. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, what happened? Jesus wept. And he said, if only you had known on this day what would bring you peace. He was coming to bring them peace. He was coming to do something greater than they could ask or imagine or comprehend. But they had such a tight perspective on what they wanted from Jesus that when he didn't do it exactly the way they wanted or expected, they became bitter. And before long, they were going from we welcome you to we wanna see you crucified. And Jesus had empathy for that place of disappointment. He wept over that city and said, I know that you're not gonna see this, but I wish, I wish that you would. And I know this morning that he's meeting you in those places of disappointment and he's not there to shame you for disappointment. He's meeting you with tears in his eyes and he's weeping with you and he's saying, I know you can't see it, but I wish that you would. I wish that you could see it. I'm doing something, doing something greater. I'm doing something more redemptive. Something that you can't comprehend, you can't ask, you can't imagine. And our disappointment wants to leave that bitter taste in our mouth. We can't partake of the things that God is doing. This morning as we worship, I believe that the exchange of even going to the communion table is bringing disappointment and saying, I've got this bitter taste in my mouth from all the places that I believe that you have failed me. And it's causing every part of my life to feel like you're disappointing me. And I want us to take communion. I want us to worship in a place of exchange. And there's a silly joke. The man goes to a doctor and he says, everything hurts. And the doctor goes, show me. And he touches his shoulder and he says, ow, my sh that hurts my shoulder. He says, well, what about your knee? He touches it and says, yeah, that hurts too. He says, what about your head? He touches his head and says, yeah, that hurts too. And he says, you got a broken finger. And it's a stupid joke, but you get the idea. Carry disappointment around, thank you. Disappointment with God. And before long, everything you touch, you're gonna to see disappointment. And even places where that little bud of spring is beginning to grow, you're gonna see weeds, you're gonna see death. Everything, disappointment, disappointment, disappointment. He has not disappointed you. He may have disappointed your expectations, but he is faithful to redeem everything that we will bring to him. I'm gonna hold those places of disappointment out in front of you for a moment. I'm, I'm mangling our timeline here and I apologize, but this is just so important that you guys hear this. And I know it's important that we worship for a minute as well. Why did Jesus weep? Because they missed what he was doing. I don't see in Jesus doing that, minimizing their pain, the process of their disappointment. I believe he has empathy with us and for us. And he's asking us to step back into a greater perspective this morning as we worship, saying I've been so focused and fixated on this that I can't step back and see the greater work that you're doing. Look at the situations that's frustrating you, disappointing you, leaving you feeling defeated. Places you don't see Jesus at work or you can't imagine him being present in. Say this, that these areas are causing you to say, oh Jesus, I welcome you in, but before long you're accusing him and frustrated with him. Everything you touch and taste and see is tainted by that bitterness. And we hold those areas out before you this morning, Jesus, and we pray for fresh hope and new perspectives to be released by your spirit into our hearts and into our minds, that we would worship boldly this morning from a place 
Not that you're asking us to go to that place of disappointment and worship you, but as we travel to that place of disappointment, we see you there with tears in your eyes and arms open and empathy for us and you're drawing us in and you're saying, if you would, if you would receive my embrace, I will show you a completely different perspective of what is taking place. Oh, that we wouldn't miss what Jesus is doing, that we would not miss the beauty of what he has done and the invitation of what he is doing. But when we allow disappointment and frustration and hurt, that's what happens. We're so disappointed we can't engage with what he has done and we miss the invitation into what he is doing. So here's what I wanna do. You guys can handle this. In a few minutes at 1230, we've told our teachers that we'll be done. Um, so if you have kids in the, in the, in the kids' classes or, or maybe in the middle school, they can hang out. Middle schoolers are fine, they got donuts. But uh, at 12.30 or right thereabouts, we just would ask that you would go get your kids. Um, for everyone that it can stay in here, we're just gonna worship for a few extra minutes. You are free to go, but I would ask that you would, if you can, that you would just remain in this place of worship. I believe that God's spirit wants to do something powerful. I believe there's a song that needs to be heard and needs to be released in this house. I believe that we need to have opportunities to take communion. And so even if you need to go get your kids and you wanna bring them back in here, you're welcome to do that. This is family. Family is noisy. Family's got kids. That's totally fine. But it's my responsibility is that I've pushed our time a little bit, but I want us to have this time of worship together. So would you guys um, just make yourselves comfortable if that means standing or moving, going and getting communion, or if you wanna go get your kids and come back in, um, please stay engaged. Thank you for your time. We love you. We're gonna worship together for a few minutes. I believe this is a perfect moment as we're sharing a song that's a song written in our team. And we wanna invite you just to engage it um, as you're having this time with the Lord. This is a song that Kira wrote. If you don't know Kira, this is Kira. And she brought it to Vanessa and I, and we uh, just helped her finish it. And so we feel like this is a song for testimony. It's speaking so much to what Ryan just spoke about. And in those moments of disappointment, remembering what he's been for us. So if, as you catch the words, we just want to invite you to worship along with us or take in the words for yourself.
Jesus, you are steadfast. You are a fortress. Thank you for the reminder of who you are. We love you so much, Lord. Seal what you did in us today. And would it just overflow and sprinkle out onto the people that we're connecting with today. We love you, God. Amen. Yes, so we have an exciting week next week, guys. It's Easter. Easter's, if you've ever seen Nacho Libre. Easter's. Um, so please come to Easter's. We have next week two, sir, two gatherings. Gatherings. We're trying to say gatherings. Not services. Gatherings. gatherings. That's what it's about. Um, we're not going to awake. We're going to become more awake at a gathering, <laughs> not a service. Anyways, okay, so I digress. Next week, 9 a.m., 11 a.m. After that, we have a really exciting thing. We are actually moving our whole church to just one gathering time so that we can all be like this, together in a room, celebrating and worshiping, which is going to be so fun. So next week is our last time having two gatherings at 9 and 11. We'll be moving to 10 a.m. after that. Not sure if there's anything else Ryan wanted me to say, but just keep a note of that next week, 9-11. After that, 10 a.m., whole family all together. We'll have kids. We'll have middle school. It's going to be a party. Love you all. Have an amazing Palm Sunday. We'll see you next week.